The first work that God did through the incarnation of his son was essential, but it was never meant to be final. Instead, it made possible the rest of the message that God still wanted to share and accomplish in the lives of the human beings that he loved so much. All of this is what he had next in store for those he loves. So he sends the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, he changed everything. How we gather got redefined by increase, both spiritually and numerically. How we serve got redefined by proximity because God came near. And when he came near, he did what only he could do. And when we really get this, that he came near, not just to give us some kind of good example in Jesus Christ, some kind of great teacher, that's not why he came. He came near because he wanted to communicate to us a very amazing message and a hard one for us to accept. And that is that... (laughs) This is all about him, that God did this, period. And this, when we really get that, becomes our singular hope. It becomes our singular hope in salvation, of course, because we can't save ourselves. And God came near and said, this is all about me. I'm going to make myself great before all the nations, the whole world, all of mankind, because because I loved you. And that's what this baptism was about. Two people who willingly declared their allegiance to Christ and Christ alone because it's all about him. It's what he did for them that he's done for each one of us. But it doesn't become our singular hope just because of our salvation. And then after that, we kind of wonder what's supposed to happen next. It becomes our singular hope in service. Because God came near, it changes the things that we say. It changes the things that we do. And we end up saying what's obvious. We end up doing what is very courageous. Now, no one will really do these things and say these things unless they are desperately seeking the one to whom they are eternally indebted. But as I said last week, the opposite's also true. Those who are seeking this amazing God to whom they are eternally indebted, will do remarkable things, like say what is obvious and do what is courageous. And that's what Acts chapter 4 is about. And while we considered what it was to say what is obvious last week, I want us to think about doing what is courageous this week. What makes a person courageous? What's the key to being brave? What is it that makes us bold? Is there a way to know that I'll be strong in that moment when I have to be? What will make me unafraid? Acts chapter 4 is about courageous people doing very brave things. And I've been saying that, you know, when, when you get it, you're willing to do it. But this passage really shows how they actually live this out. So how did they do this? What can we learn from this that will help us be more courageous? Well, you can be courageous when you know that what you're facing is under God's control and not yours. And we see that right away because in response to the threats that 
Peter and John are facing before these kind of spiritual bullies that we learned about last week. They respond in prayer. I begin reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. On their release, so these guys let them go for now, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together and prayed to God, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus Christ, whom you anointed. And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, my question to you is, Does that sound like a prayer that you pray when you're faced with a very terrifying situation? It's not my knee-jerk prayer. My knee-jerk prayer is, help me. (laughs) And yet, look what they do. They make it about God and what He is doing. This is a prayer charged with really strong words, not based on them, but on who God is and His plans and not what they happen to have in mind of a solution that he might offer. They prayed in verse 28, these people did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Some really strong words here. This word will or purpose is will based on determination. This isn't God observing and seeing what happened and then said, oh, okay, now I'll do this. This is actually determined and intentional. And then in verse 24, they say, sovereign Lord, that's the word master. And it's where we get our English word despot, which is usually a negative term we use for some kind of a tyrannical dictator who does whatever he wants. This is about absolute ownership and uncontrolled power. Because God is good, we know he's not a negative despot, but he has absolute ownership and uncontrolled power, and he works through those. In fact, Peter uses this word later in his epistle when he talks about um, people that are going to come and introduce uh, destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord, master. And then he says, and they brought swift destruction upon themselves because that master is exactly that, in control of everything. And he doesn't let anybody get away with what he has not determined should happen. Where does courage come from? It comes from knowing that you're not in control and that God is in control. And there's something very, very freeing about that. Our fear comes to the fact that we believe we have to have something under our control and we're wondering whether we'll be able to do it. And on a good day, maybe, and on a bad day, there's not a chance. And there's something very freeing when you understand that the God that we serve is the sovereign Lord, the master with uncontrolled power and absolute ownership. And when the circumstances are under his control, well, you have nothing to prove. You don't have to defend God's reputation. He's going to take care of that. 
and all of the circumstances that you're facing are under his absolute control. When you accept this, that God is truly in control, you've got nothing to prove because he's the one that's proving what is all good and what is to be accomplished. Of course, our problem comes in the fact that we have our own abilities that we measure to some degree and we want to be able to prove ourselves. The examples in this passage go on to show us another observation that can help us with that. You can be courageous when what you want and what you seek is what God wants, not what you want. And this is where the boldness comes from. And that's what they asked for in verse 29. Isn't it amazing? They go on, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Enable us to speak your word with great boldness. And we see boldness show up again then in verse 31 where they're filled by the Holy Spirit. They yield to him and he empowers them. But it's interesting. They don't request that he take away the opposition. They ask for strength in the opposition. They don't ask that it be removed. They are very, very intentional. And isn't that interesting? In the first observation, we noticed that God was very intentional. He has determined that these things are going to happen. Circumstances are under his control. And these people respond just as intentionally. And that's pretty interesting. You might think if somebody kind of submits to the great master, you become passive and say, well, what difference does it make then anyway? That's not the example. They intentionally say, and whatever you're doing, we want to be a part of. So give us everything we need to do what you want us to do. It's amazing, isn't it? You can be courageous when you know what you're facing is under God's control, not yours, so that you have nothing to prove. And then you can be courageous when you seek, when you want what God wants and not what you want. Knowing what God wants and making his desire yours above all means pursuing what he wants above all things. And when you get that, well, then you got nothing to hide. Because all you're about is what God's about. How many things do we feel like we have to hide? Because we've got some kind of secret agenda we're trying to accomplish. And if I can just manipulate the circumstances the right way, then I can get what I want. But if I dare tell anybody, it'll never happen. When you get what is best, really, that his will, because he has everything under control, is the best thing, then you've got nothing to hide. Because you aren't pursuing a personal agenda. You're pursuing what he wants. Now, that's all great to say, <laughs> And I know that that's not easy to do. So, does anybody really do this kind of thing? There's one more thing in this passage that does demonstrate what it looks like when you will do this. One more great example out of these courageous people. And one more observation. You can be courageous when all you have, you realize, was given by God to use and it's not yours look at verses 32 through 37 all the believers were one in heart and mind no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything they had 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them and brought the money from the sales, and they put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Wow. All the believers were in one heart and mind, sharing no one had need because they gave and they sold. Again, a couple of really strong words here. Belonging to his possessions, right, means literally to have at hand. That's what, what is ready at hand, what is right in front of you. It's right there. You can, you can grab it, okay? That's, that's the possessions concept. And then there's this word, his own. Uh, this means private or proper or, or uh, one's own. You know what it means? It means it's mine. And then the passage negates that word strongly. In other words, it's not their own. They didn't consider what was at hand, which is obviously mine, mine. What that phrase means is what is at hand belongs to another. Where does this kind of courage come from? Knowing what belongs to God and making yourself a steward of that. Everything that is at hand. Making this life an adventure of figuring out what God wants you to do with all that he has put in your hand. The reason I put it that way is because it reminds me of a man who said that to me once. Years ago when I was uh, a missionary and uh, the way that works in this circle of, uh, of evangelicalism is that you sense a calling of God on your life, you share that vision with other people and other people give money so that you can go and do that. And I had been doing it for a number of years and, and uh, traveling to churches, speaking to them, sharing this and God was providing for us. But God had placed a, a new adventure for us uh, right in, in front of us, really what we believe was it at hand. And he had opened a bunch of doors, and we believed he wanted us to move forward on it, but it was bigger than anything we'd done before. I needed a quarter of a million dollars to make something happen in this new city we were moving to. That was something I'd never, never had to do before. Well, I got a phone call from, uh, well, it was an email from a friend that I went to college with. And he said, our church would like to support you. Now, that doesn't really happen very often. <laughs> Usually, it's the other way around. So, can we do that? I'm like, sure, you can do that. He says, and then make it a, uh, a, a, a priority to come visit us as soon as you can. So, the next opportunity that we had, we went to this church. But he says to me, listen, we're already supporting you. I don't want you to tell about your uh, thing in church when you speak. It's going to be a Sunday where we're inviting uh, the church to invite their friends. It's a bring a friend Sunday. And he says, I know who you are and I know you can do this and I want you to share the love of Christ that day. So I'm like, well, I'm all over that. <laughs> I love doing that. But of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, and um, you know, about the other thing, you know? 
And he says, listen, I'll give you a chance. He said, we have these little classes before we, and they were meeting in a school at the time. He said, we'll go literally into a classroom, and, uh, and I'm going to encourage people to come, and they'll be able to hear your spiel. I remember it was the first time I ever used PowerPoint, okay? So it was a number of years ago, and I had this slick PowerPoint, and I, I don't think it was so slick, but anyway, back in the days when you had all the sounds, too, with screeching and, you know, wheels and all kinds, of, I had all that stuff going on. And, uh, you know, I thought I had this great thing, and, and I, I had my chance to do my spiel then, and then we go into the service where, you know, Everybody else came. And uh, so I, I showed up in the classroom, got everything ready, and it, it was just terrific, right? Because I was there, and, um, and my wife was there. That was good. Um, but she was already in on this. So, and then um, the pastor's wife was there, so that was great. And, um, and his sister, a, uh, a newly uh, divorced single mom going through a bunch of trouble. She was going to be a lot of help. And, um, and the... Uh, the divorced couple, I mean, the, uh, the retired couple that picked us up from the airport that were on a single income, hey, you can count on them. That'll be, that'll be terrific. And um, so that was it. Well, that's great. Um, so I figured I'd just practice. So I got to practice. And I got up there and I did my thing, you know, with all the passion I possibly could. Partway through, very unassuming man came walking in at the back of the room, casually dressed and just kind of overheard what was going on. And, and then I did my thing and that was it. And we walked out. Um, before it was quite over, the pastor came walking in. He sat in the back, too. So he wanted to make sure I got to the next place I was supposed to be. So we're walking down the hallway, and he's like, uh, <laughs> by the way, there was a guy in that room that could bankroll that whole thing without even thinking about it. I'm like, wow, really? Amazing. So, of course, you pray, right? You know? <laughs> and then uh, I did my thing in the service that day, and then we were going out to lunch, and this very unassuming man walks up to me and says, so, uh, could, um, I heard you're going out to lunch with the pastor. you mind if I come along? No, not at all. You know, it'd be great. Um, and sit by me, right? And um, so we made sure that that happened. And then he begins to tell me a story. And uh, he met his uh, love of his life in high school, and he married her. And they graduated from, when they graduated from high school, he didn't want to go to college. So he started working at a Wendy's. He was a hard-working guy, and he rose up to the point of becoming the manager of that Wendy's. And apparently he was uh, really good at what he did because um, sometime later, the man who owned the Wendy's in that whole area came to him and said, I'm, I'm skipping over two levels of management. I see you as a person who ought to go and open a whole bunch of Wendy's in a new area that they've asked me to go to, and I don't want to do it. So would you like to do it? And he said, uh, I haven't got any money. He said, it's all right, I've got a financier. I'll work that out. He says, I just want, you, want to know if you want to do it. He said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, just within a few years, he was so successful, he was able to pay off that financier. He's brought in a whole other set of uh, uh, restaurants in that particular area and was telling me about a new one that he was beginning to do. And, of course, wealth uh, that was incredible. And he looked at me and he said, now, I tell you that whole story simply for this reason. This has absolutely nothing to do with me, obviously. And my wife and I are just on this adventure of figuring out what God wants us to do with all his money. Now, why do we like stories like that so much? Because you think, try not to be so, I'll point at me too, we think if we were really, really rich, we'd be really, really generous, don't we? 
And the reason we think that is because if we were really, really rich, we know that we'd still have plenty left over for us. Plenty right there at hand that's mine. Well, the fact of the matter is, we are really, really rich, aren't we? Compare your income and your home and what you consider discretionary income with where Gerda came from. You're loaded. And yet, how come when we decide how much we believe we're supposed to give to other people and to God's kingdom and to whatever, there's so much still left over for us? Why is that? It's because we don't really believe that everything belongs to him. We're not courageous enough to trust that everything that he has given me in gifts and abilities and wealth and talent really is not mine. It's his. But when we do, when we will realize that all you have is his, you know what? You have nothing to lose. Because everything that has been given to you has not been earned. It's been given to you. He'll continue to give you everything that's necessary. Aren't your needs met? And he desires that you do the same thing towards other people. As generous as he has been to you, he wants you to be to those that are around you, to those that are at hand with what you have in hand. And as we do this, trust me, because I'm on this same journey. I get the same worries and concerns, if there's enough. But what I have learned is as we learn that everything at hand is not ours, but his and we learn to give more of it towards those that he tells us to, we realize we need less. And we see how much more we can actually give. What does that kind of thinking do? What does that kind of mentality do? It makes you courageous. Because when you really accept that God is in control, you've got nothing to prove. You walk in his reputation, not yours. And when you really get what you know is best, his will and not yours, then you've got nothing to hide because all that you are is about him. And when you really understand that everything you have at hand is not yours, it's his, then you've got nothing to lose. Because it all belongs to him anyway. And all you do is enter into an amazing adventure of figuring out what God wants you to do with all that he's given you. When you're courageous, what does that lead to? That just leads to all kinds of opportunities. Well, what opportunities? I don't know. For you, I know that the master knows. 
The sovereign Lord knows. The one who has a perfect will for you, he knows. And he's going to show you what he wants you to do with what he has placed at hand. So what does the master want? What might his will lead you to do? What do you have at hand that is his that he wants you to share and use and not consider your own? but rather an instrument for his purposes. And you get to be a very wise and careful steward of that. Well, sounds good, except you're just one, right? You're just one. What can you do? Yeah, well, what if you were one that was courageous? What if you had nothing to prove? What if you had nothing to hide? And what if you had nothing to lose?